8 o'clock, and it's Health Watch Radio. I'm your host every week, Dr. Jacques Dweck. Tonight we have a special guest, Uri Schneider, who specializes in speech therapy, and specifically what we're going to be talking about tonight is stuttering. So, Uri, I'd like to turn it over to you to just first answer the question, what is stuttering? First, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, Dr. Dweck, your show is a great service to the community, and it's a privilege to join you and your listeners. And I uh, want to thank you and wish you a lot of ongoing success and strength to keep the show going. Thank you. Um, stuttering is one of the most enigmatic disorders, issues out there, uh, and it's been around for a long time. It's not a fad. It's not something new. As early as Book of Exodus, Moses at the burning bush, we see some sort of a speech impediment. Uh, most people understand what was going on there to be some sort of a stutter. Um, and through time immemorial, we see stuttering as something that manifests with people. Some of the greatest leaders, including the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, and many celebrities, uh, executives, Jack Welch, uh, famous CEO of American uh, companies. Um, stuttering is an issue that is related to the neurophysiological wiring and coordination of the speech system. It's not a psychological problem. It's not an emotional problem. It's not a cognitive problem. It's something that has to do with this delicate, rapid ballet of how the brain sends ideas and language and sentences to the speech system in the throat and the larynx and the voice box and through the mouth and all the articulators. And somewhere around the larynx uh, or around the articulators, there's a little bit of a glitch. And so stuttering is some kind of a neurophysiological glitch, and it's not emotional, and it's not psychological. It's a big misnomer. Wow. So m- most people, I think, when they think about stutterers, they say, well, this guy must be very nervous. Yeah, that's right. Right, I think that's what most people would think. So you're saying if this is a wiring neurophysiologic situation, what can be done to fix if the wiring's bad, you can't rewire them? Right. Well, first of all, there is a lot of cutting-edge research in universities, not just online with top science, but in universities, Harvard, MIT, and I try to attend whatever lectures I can understand and conferences I can, I can get myself into, in terms of neuroplasticity and neuroscience, so there's a lot to be said for recovery and wiring that can actually change over time. Uh, but that being said, I think just to speak to the, the, concept, the concept that a lot of people have, I think the better way to think of it is not that this guy or this gal must be nervous, but rather, just like an allergy, the issue is not the dust, the pollen, the, the peanut. The issue is that a person has a sensitivity and when it comes to the speech, the nervousness, the anxiety, the social pressure of certain situations could be like that peanut or like that pollen that triggers that sensitivity. But the sensitivity itself has nothing to do with anxiety. So anxiety, nervousness, certain situations, talking to certain people, speaking about very complex, excited topics, being tired, speaking fast, these things can trigger the stutter, but it's not the problem itself. And so in terms of treatment, it's important not to go down the road of treating the symptom or the trigger, but looking at that, at that wiring and that sensitivity. So I think the treatment that we generally look at for preschool children has to do with physically helping children strengthen fluent speech production. It's a very behavioral approach. It's strictly focused on the speech, whereas as children, adults, and adults go through life with this issue, one has to deal with the traditional speech aspects of it, but also the attitudes and the beliefs and some of the counseling that goes alongside it. Not to say it's a psychological issue, but when you have this issue for that, that amount of time, to develop a layer of fear, uh, of hesitation, of anticipation, and all kinds of adaptations that may get you off course from where you really want to be, and that needs you know, proper counseling all the way from the school-age years to adulthood. So if we're saying that this, the stuttering is a neurophysiologic wiring situation, a sensitivity, let's call it that, similar to the way allergies works, that is 
brought out worse when they're in certain situations. So let's take the, the preschool child first, where it's primarily the, the neurophysiologic wiring. Why is that child more prone to it than somebody else? Just because that's their predisposition, like you said, like somebody who has allergies. And what, what happens with time, you said, is that it just builds up these layers of anxiety that goes with it from being in those situations. So you're helping that preschool child by teaching them to speak more fluently. Right. So what's interesting is all children who stutter and all adults who stutter, there's almost no one on record as far as I know, or there is no one on record as far as I know that stuttered on their first words. So at the stage of first words, nobody is on record stuttering. Stuttering begins to rear its head. In those preschool years, usually the onset is between three and six or seven years of age, sometimes a little later. But it's at that time when language is beginning to take off. Complexity, combination of, sentence, uh, of words and sentences and phrases, as these things become more and more complex, uh, that tends to be the time when we see stuttering manifest itself. Another interesting point is that even when the stuttering manifests itself, another enigmatic quality to it is it's not the same day to day and it's not the same for every single word. So a child who stutters could stutter quite severely on some words and sentences but have many words and sentences that come out just fine. So essentially in those early years what could be the trigger? Well I think there's a predisposition to that sensitivity and then some of the inborn environmental triggers could be developmental bursts of language, a developmental burst of vocabulary, a developmental burst of cognition, developmental burst of emotional development, social-emotional development, motor development. All these different systems are developing at rapid pace in these early years, more than any other time in life. And as one system shoots up, by definition, the system has a little bit more vulnerability. And the vulnerability can manifest for some with disfluency, with stuttering. And the treatment is really to catch the fluent speech, to facilitate the fluent speech, and to help parents help the kids have more and more of that fluent speech, and then hopefully just help the fluent speech become more and more of the norm for the child, reinforcing that neurophysiological pathway and reinforcing that as best we can. So now, let's say a parent has a child that is a stutterer, and even they're getting treatment right now, they're going and they're in therapy. What can the parent do to help that child along? Or if you, a, a parent sees they have a child that seems to be starting to stutter, and even before they go in for therapy, what kind of things can parents do or should avoid doing in these kind of situations? That's a very, very important question. Um, I think the rubric of uh, questions should be as follows. I think number one, you know, what to do and what not to do. I think always be focused on communication and the first and foremost of what we want to do with speech therapy or with, with kids in general is you want them to be connected to the parents, to be connected to their friends, to be connected to the world around them. And so we want to make sure they keep talking. Things that would go against that would be things like every time the child stutters, telling them to hold on, take a deep breath. Uh, hold on, let's say that slowly. Because what we're sending, the message we're sending to the child is every time they get stuck, they're making the connection that we're telling them, oh, you got stuck, do it again, don't talk like that. So those are things that can impede the drive to continue communicating. Wow, wow, this, this, this is, I, I want to really underline this because I think this point is really very, very powerful point. Because I think our knee-jerk reflex is when somebody is having trouble expressing something and they start stuttering, we're going to tell them, wait, wait, take a deep breath, slow down, don't talk so quickly, because that's our knee-jerk reaction is to help them through it in that way. And in reality, what you're telling me is that by doing that, we're sh making it worse. It could be. Yeah, it could be. I think what that comes from is it's hard for us. It's hard for us if we're talking to a child and it's our own child hard for us if we're talking to someone else's child or our grandchild, and it's hard for us if we're talking to an adult. It's hard to listen to someone being stuck in that way. And so the knee-jerk reaction is to somehow either make ourselves feel 
it make them feel better and try to extinguish it and try to restart it. And for a young child, hearing that over and over could be a very powerful message, and it could have some uh, unintended detrimental effects. So some, those are some of the don'ts. Um, and again, some of the do's would be anything to enhance the listening. Uh, so for example, if we have other children in the picture or we're at the table with the other children and everybody's you know, fighting to get an ed- a word in edgewise, this child's having hard enough time on his own. But if he has the pressure of speed, if he feels he's going to lose his turn or he's going to be outspoken by his big sister, whatever it may be, we can help that child by making sure they get some really good listening. And that may be when we can give them some one-on-one special time, five, ten minutes a day. That could be bringing some uh, better listening habits, better turn-taking to the entire family culture. Um, So that's one thing, giving good listening, telling a child that you're there to listen to them, getting down at their level, speaking at a rate, instead of telling the child to slow down, speaking at a rate of speech that we would be expecting the child to slow down to. We have these mirror neurons, so if we speak slower, the child will speak slower, and we don't need to tell them to do anything. But just by speaking to ourselves, hey, let me see what happens if I slow down my speech. That's going to help the child slow down. And the neurophysiological motor coordination, the demands are much less when the rate is reduced. And so without telling the child to do anything, these are some tips that parents can do uh, immediately if they see a child who's stuttering, whether it's their child or someone else's. And uh, they're also a good decision-making rubric that I wanted to share in terms of when to seek help. more children stutter than people would think. Five out of 100 kids stutter for six months or more. That's a pretty large number, and that's for six months or more. Many more children stutter for less than six months. So of that group of kids, the decision-making would go as follows. Has the child been stuttering for six months? they haven't, you could possibly wait a little bit longer. But once you hit six months, that's an objective uh, criterion at which time you should probably seek out a stuttering specialist for a consultation evaluation. If the child has been stuttering for six months, you're going for an evaluation. If they haven't, the next question is, does the child exhibit any kind of concern or worry about their speech? If they do, that's a reason to go seek out a consultation or evaluation, even if it hasn't been six months. And the last question, of course, is if mommy or daddy are particularly concerned. Uh, There's no reason for them to sit on that just watch the clock tick because they're probably not going to do they're not going to do well themselves and they're not going to do well for their child sitting on that kind of worry so even if it's less than six months the parent has that kind of concern that warrants seeking out a specialist getting some information getting some guidelines and deciding where to go from there it doesn't mean you have to start therapy you can get some good information and some good guidance right so again just to to review, if you just joined us, it's Health Watch Radio. I'm your host every week, Dr. Jacques Dweck. Our special guest tonight is Uri Schneider. He is discussing with us treating stuttering. And he is a speech pathologist with his focus right now with us on stuttering. He just gave us three very important guidelines to when to seek help for stuttering. Either when the stuttering has been ongoing for six months or more, because five out of 100 of the children who stutter for six months or more, we're going to find that group there. Or they may be stuttering for less than six months, but does the child exhibit a concern? And then third, if the parents are concerned about it. So just to get an evaluation by a speech pathologist is just a first step to see what needs to be done. And we discussed previous to this, some of the do's and don'ts, and I think we didn't, we didn't review the do's, we, we reviewed the don'ts, which is don't tell them, take a deep breath, don't tell them, talk slowly, and because that could be giving them a damaging message, and even though that's our knee-jerk reflex, and the do's are to enhance the listening, to give the child good listening time. For example, have the one-on-one relationship time, or if it's at a dinner table, taking turns properly, and speaking with the child at a rate of speech that will be comfortable for the child to be able to process what they have to say in a good way without you having to hint to them or say to them anything that's telling them slow down. So I like all of those things. 
So, yeah. So here we are. We have children there of six months been been stuttering. What's the average age child that you're seeing, and what's the results that you're getting with that? So I like this point very much because a reality is that if you can't fix the situation completely, to be comfortable with your situation, which I think is, is sounds like a very good part of the therapy, and knowing how to function with it is also as powerful as being able to fix it completely. That's right. Uh, just a nice story. I'll just share a quick story. I got a call from Lakewood. This young man that was working with us from before his bar mitzvah, then he took a break for a while. And then, of course, before Shaduchim, before marriage, arranged marriage setups, he was very interested in working on his speech again. And he was terrified. What was he going to do once the family would find out that he has a speech impediment and a defect? He was going to be rejected. And slowly but surely, he worked on his speech to the greatest degree possible. He practiced many times. He would call our voicemail and leave messages. He didn't have a lot of appointments. But ultimately, I suggested this crazy 
idea that he just kind of makes sure that the young lady and that the family know what stuttering is and what it's not, just like we're having this little uh, demystification conversation about the facts about stuttering, and that he should go on and just tell them, look, it doesn't stop me, it's not going to stop me in the base medrash, in my learning, it's not going to stop me to be a teacher, it's not going to stop me to be a great husband or great father. And he called me after his first date, and he said, you know, it was unbelievable. I put it right out there, and at the end of the date, I asked him what they thought, and he said he spent three hours with the girl, an hour with the father. He says they didn't even notice. They didn't even notice. That's Last great... week, this young man got married. Wow, that's great. That's great. I love that story. Well, those kind of success stories, I think, are part of what makes your job as a speech pathologist so rewarding because you can really see direct results. And like you said, you don't have to have 100% cure of a problem, which is really so powerful that, you know, somebody could say, well, I have a situation. What happens if they can't fix it? We're not fixing. We're working with it. And maybe in a certain percentage of cases, you can get 100% fixed. I don't know how, how much that is, but whatever that is, it's not even important anymore because the real critical part of this thing is that there is success within almost any of your results. That's right. It's a, it's yeah. a great... I, I would emphasize just to give credit to my, uh, my father, my mentor, my teacher, Dr. Phil Schneider, and uh, you can see much of the work that we do and much of his work, www.schneiderspeech.com. There are free documentaries uh, films on there. They're not promotional, but really informational documentaries. One of them was on PBS called Transcending Stuttering, the inside story. It follows seven people, a longitudinal kind of follow-up uh, through their journey. has nothing to do with stuttering, but just kind of stepping into the shoes of a person who stutters and what that looks like and how it manifests from the age of 7, 10, 13, 17, 25, 35, really following them through life. And the second film was in a number of film festivals across the country. It's called Going with the Flow, the guide to transcending stuttering. And there we follow two people and the kind of progression through their therapy over a number of years. But what my father always says, and what you were just pointing out, uh, Dr. Dweck, is a person is a body and a, and a soul. We have a very soulful, spiritual kind of approach here. So we don't treat a stutter. We treat a person. So a person walks in. And that's what we're trying to help. We're trying to free a person. Every person has something to bring to the world, some shining spark, some shining talent, something bright, something to add. And the shame is that sometimes, whether it's a crooked smile, we'll send them over to you, or whether it's uh, not such smooth speech, these things can detract from their ability or their confidence to really do what they're meant to do. And in most cases, what we're trying to do is make sure that people stay on point and do that mission that they're here to do. And when you become committed to a mission, the other stuff starts to find its place. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean you put your head in the sand. You do everything you can do. But at the end of the day, you're not defined by whether you beat it or you didn't beat it. I think you're defined by whether you accomplished what you were meant to accomplish and you didn't let this thing stop you. It was good enough. It should be good enough. And you should be excellent in what you're really meant to do. Fantastic. So, you know, we, we talked about what parents should and shouldn't do in, in, when they have a child that stutters. What about the therapy? Is there a difference in the types of therapy that, uh, or different approaches, therapy approaches for stuttering? Yeah, I think uh, essentially, starting with children, there are approaches that are very much focused on the parents. So the parents are delivering the therapy. There's no expectation on the child. So the therapist is training the parents to be the ones to deliver the therapy through the environment and to reinforce certain behaviors. Um, with young children, there's also those that use um, speech strategies, teaching the children. The speech therapist will teach the child a strategy. Um, and that's something that's done through the school age years and obviously into adulthood teaching speech strategies. Some of the speech strategies are focused on uh, fluency enhancement, so whether it's using melody and song in speech to kind of glide through the sounds and give people more fluency, uh, or other techniques like that. And some of the other approaches are focused on teaching techniques just to reduce the severity 
and the intensity of those interruptions uh, to modify the stutter. And then, of course, there's also the component we alluded to earlier, which is kind of working on the attitudes, the beliefs, the self-acceptance to the right degree. And in our practice with young children, we work on a very parent-focused approach. Approaches can be researched. It's called the LIDCOM approach, L-I-D-C-O-M-B-E. comes out of Australia, very well researched. And the other approach we lean on a lot is the PCI, Parent-Child Interaction Therapy, which comes out of the Palin Center in England. Uh, something that's interesting with big children is that all the therapies around the world and all the best research really show that there's no harm in being direct, in talking to the child about the fact that sometimes their words get stuck and that we're here to listen. Whereas in the past, it would have been thought to say anything would only exacerbate the problem. Now we have consensus that the best thing to do is to talk about the elephant in the room in a way that's relatable and something that the child can grasp. The word stuttering is very abstract and high in the cloud, but the word getting stuck or sticky, those words are things that a child can understand, and words like smooth or easy, on the other hand, are words the child can understand. And as they're younger, they don't need any of the counseling. As they get older, that's an important component and, and may even become more important for some people, more important than the speech strategies themselves. You, you know, I could... Uh identify with this whole getting stuck when I think of somebody who gets up to Davin and you know you talk about somebody who has it shirura befiv right that's the phrase I don't know that with my havara that's the way I say shirura befiv meaning that it flows very very easily for certain people and you see somebody gets up there he's a chazan and he's going nice and smooth and everything just so easy for him and somebody else, and I'm in that somebody else crowd, we get up there and it's it just doesn't flow out so well. So I could yep. really feel that feeling that the stutterer has, that it's just sort of like getting stuck and not going so smoothly. That's right. And as you stand there, and I count myself among the group that you count yourself among, if I try to dive in for a Sephardi congregation or even Nusach Sephard for a long time, would catch me. A few words in Shimon Esrei that are a little bit different. And the fear that you have as you stand there is, oh my gosh, they're going to think I don't know how to read. They're going to think I don't know what to say. And the stutterer has that same thought because he knows exactly what he wants to say. It's just not coming out of his mouth, not coming out of his throat. But he knows exactly what he wants to say. And so it's important for, for those of us that know people who stutter to know that what they want us to know is that they know what they want to say. So finishing their sentences might be helpful for some, but in most cases, we would do better just giving them some more patience and listening on, because we might not get it right. They know what they want to say. And if we're unsure how to listen, we should ask the person who's talking, would you like me to help you finish that word, or would you prefer I just wait it out? Always check in. That's interesting. You know, I, I, I think of when, when you're saying this idea of letting the stutterer finish his sentence, you know, uh, one of the things that we did when we were talking with uh, uh, professionals regarding going for an interview, so they said, you know, when you go for an interview and the person who's interviewing you, you're going for an interview, and they start speaking, your best strategy at that point is to smile and to nod, to let them know that you're listening. And I think that that fits very nicely here with the stutterer, to smile and to nod, to let them know I'm listening. I'm not losing my patience. I'm ready to, to, to be there and listen to what you have to say. I think it's, it's a very, very powerful message that you're giving the role of the listener as well when you have someone who is stuttering. I think those professionals said it right. You'll never end up with your foot in your mouth if you do good listening with a lot of nodding, and smiling, and nonverbal kind of affirmation. You'll never end up with your foot in your mouth, and you'll always get the best out of the other person. My father always says, people pay thousands of dollars for psychotherapy. What did they get? Hmm, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> All right, when's our next appointment? So, and people like that. People want to be listened to. It's one of the most valuable and, uh, unfortunately, scarce things that we can find in the world. So, yeah. Okay, so maybe we can do a little bit of summarizing on a couple of what I consider very key points here. First of all, to, to redefine stuttering and 
what is the cause of stuttering. I think that's a very important thing for us to review right now. Would you do that? Sure. I'm sorry. You know what? I was, I was excited and waiting for to hear you summarize. Yeah. What were the two things? <laughs> stuttering and what is the cause of stuttering. A definition of stuttering yes. and what is the cause of stuttering. Yes. Okay. Okay. So neurophysiological problem. It has to do with the way the brain sends signals to the voice box, the larynx, and the articulators. And the, the rapid-fire ballet is somehow interrupted somewhere at the level of the larynx or the articulators. It's not a problem of cognition of knowing what they want to say. It's not an anxiety problem, emotional problem, or psychological problem. It's strictly a, a wiring problem that has to do with the physical coordination of speech. Right, and I think one of the things that I heard you say the first time around, which was ver very important to me, is that the reason these things seem to happen is because during early development, when things are increasing, the complexity of language is increasing, and everything is sort of growing very quickly, some of the things don't sort of catch up at the same rate. That's what I sort of felt that you said. If I'm That's right. That's right. And later in life, I would say this time of year, as everyone's getting ready for Passover, you know, some of us start to stress out and fall apart at the seams in other ways. So when the stress is on, when the press is on, whatever the different stressors may be, uh, for an adult who stutters or for a child, if there are enough different stressors, enough multitasking going on, uh, the person who has a tendency to stutter is going to reveal that stutter in those situations. Right, and I think that underscores the whole idea of it's not that the stutterer is stuttering because he's nervous, it's that the stutterer has a wiring situation. And now because of his anxiety, it's made worse because he's already had a few times when he's had that word getting stuck as he was trying to speak. So now his word was getting stuck, He's anxious about it. Now he knows he's going to be saying something, and then it makes him even more anxious. So it's sort of like a, right. a vicious cycle. Anxiety, fatigue, speed, loudness, um, excitement, these are all common triggers and should be thought about for adults and for children. So now, and then what we were talking about, which I think is very important as well, is the different approach between how we're approaching treating preschool and the adults. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I think with preschool children, it's very important to realize uh, young children in preschool don't have a lot of thoughts about themselves. They don't ask to get the same brand sneaker as the kid next to them or the same color backpack. They don't have a concept of cool or not cool. So the same way this kid has blonde hair, this kid has brown hair, I talk like this and he talks like this. There's not a lot of teasing and there's not a lot of shame. So the work should be very much focused on helping the child uh, continue to strengthen the fluent speech that's already there. Whereas once we get to the school age years, I think it's important that the speech therapy approach includes both traditional speech therapy about speech techniques and things to help the child express himself as successfully as possible, as well as a component of counseling addressing the attitudes, feelings, beliefs, and so on. And I think really probably one of the more important things that I've heard tonight is the do's and don'ts of what to do and what not to do with the stutterer. As the parent or the sibling or relative, what not to do is probably the number one thing if you go through those do's and don'ts. Sure. So I think, again, the, the most common things that people say, and I'll add one I didn't say before, common ones are, you know, hold on, take a deep breath, oh, just slow down. And the one I'll add is, why don't you think what you want to say and say it? Oh, boy. Um, no. Those three, those three come from the best of places with the greatest intentions of care and love. But if done over and over, they send a message. It's a conditional, a behavioral conditioning. The child gets stuck. He hears this kind of corrective message. And so he's learning when I get stuck like that, if it's going to keep happening, I might as well just not say it. Uh, something about that is unacceptable, and it's going to shut down the fullest freedom of communication for that child, perhaps. So those are some of the don'ts. In place of those, we are going to give parents and do encourage parents, caretakers, educators to use some of the following. Whatever you might have wanted to say to the child, say it to yourself. 
So if you wanted to say, hey, slow down, take a deep breath, if the adult would slow down and take a deep breath, they're going to model the rate of speech that's going to be much more conducive for fluency. And we know that these mirror runs and communication works way, the child will mirror that model. So essentially you'll give the child the same help without verbally telling them. Rather, say it to yourself, give them the model, and you'll get the same good results. The other is to build in quality uh, listening time, special time, five to ten minutes a day with that child so that they have your full attention. Phone is off. Siblings are kept at a distance or occupied somehow, some way. Maybe they hold the phone. And then uh, sometimes at the table, the idea of turn-taking, and you can have siblings that just constantly butt in, step on their toes, and it's important to tune in to the sensitivity of that child who's getting stuck. Sometimes it's a big sibling, sometimes it's a little sibling, but to make sure that there's good turn-taking and good listening going on. And every child should get that special time, but this child needs that extra, extra care from the parent. And I think one of the things that I liked a lot was the predictability of positive results with this treatment for stuttering because really a lot of the focus is on helping the person either physically improve it, which that'll be great, and if not just physically improve it, be able to adapt to it and have strategies of dealing with it in a very positive way, as you gave the beautiful example of the young man who just recently got engaged. Yeah, I think it's very important. I think that I just want to go on the record. It's my hope and it's my effort to the nth degree that nobody goes on stuttering and that we could cure every child and every person and that nobody should have this impediment. And I, 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 I pray and I try that that's the outcome that every single person should have, those that see us and those that don't. When we see people, we take their names, we try to daven for them, and between the best work we can do, their partnership in doing their part, and Hashem's help, that's how we hope for the best outcomes. If a person continues to stutter, everything that we shared holds true. They shouldn't think of themselves as a failure, but we shouldn't think of ourselves as a failure, but rather focus on you know, the fullest freedom of communication, the fullest freedom of speech, to not hold them back and to allow them to go on and do everything that they're meant to do in this world. Now, if our listeners want to contact the Schneider Speech Pathology uh, Organization, they can reach you, I know, in Brooklyn. Uh, I can give them the number of 347-673-1620. But you're also available in a lot of other places because I understand you are not just one person. You are a team approach to helping people with speech impediments. So the team father, Dr. Phil Schneider, who taught Queens College for 35 years. He taught many, many of the speech therapists in the community and around the New York area. Um, I came into this as a kid, six years old, knowing I wanted to be a speech therapist. At that young age, he inspired me, and he and I co-lead the team. We have four exceptional speech therapists. It's not an organization. It's a very small team, and that way we're able to make ourselves available in many places close to different people. So we have the same phone number you gave, 347-673-1620. We have an office in Brooklyn. We have an office on the Upper West Side. We have an office in Great Neck, Lawrence, Queens, and the flagship, my father's office, in Riverdale in the Bronx. Check out the website, schneiderspeech.com, for some fabulous uh, video material. And I also want to encourage everyone to check out a few other websites for good information and advocacy. The Jewish Stuttering Association, jstutter.org, has self-help, support groups, and a network of parents to talk to each other. Uh, we also try to create mentorship and pair people with one another, uh, whether they are clients or not. There's also the NSA, National Stuttering Association. They have a support group that meets at Brooklyn College, which is an excellent group, and I encourage people to check that out. That's for teens and adults who stutter. And I would also encourage people to check out Stuttering Foundation of America as a good resource, as well as the last and final one, stuttertalk.com has podcasts interviewing the best professionals around the world, as well as people who stutter around the world. A lot of great information for people to do their homework and see what's out there for people who stutter and for young people who stutter. Great. So, again, thank you so much, Uri, Uri Schneider, for joining us and sharing with us some very, very important uh, changes in attitude about stuttering. I know for myself, 
I learned a lot, and hopefully our listeners did as well. And if anyone has somebody that could benefit, they can, again, reach Uri at 347-673-1620 or go on the website, schneiderspeech.com. I think they'll have a lot. Thanks, Uri. Thanks again. The best of the Jewish world. JRootRadio.com. Visit our new home, www.jrootradio.com. You're listening to JRoot Radio.
Hey, no. 
J. Root Radio. Take the new route home. You are listening to the J. Root Radio Station 97.5 on your FM dial. The following is a series entitled Da Mashatoshiv Latmacha Know What to Answer to Yourself by Rabbi David Saperman. Rabbi Saperman has taught and lectured in the Yeshiva and Kirov world for almost four decades. Over the years, he has developed an expertise in presenting Emuna, the fundamentals of our faith, to a wide range of listeners. This first lecture, entitled The Emuna Deficit, will introduce the entire series and explain the dire need to gain greater conviction in Emuna. We're about to begin a series entitled Da Mashetoshiv Le'atzmacha. Know what to answer to yourself. It's important for you to know before we begin what is the importance of this series and probably tonight we won't do more than cover the reasons that I feel that we have to give this series. We are the children of the Frum. We come from Frum homes, Shemre Tairo Mitzvahs, Shemre Shabbos, Ochle Kashrus, Loim Dei Tairo, parents go to a shear, go to a shul, and we've been accustomed to do mitzvahs since our childhood. When you were a little boy, they put you on a pair of tzitzis, they taught you the bracha of tzitzis, etc., etc., and that's a wonderful thing, to be trained in mitzvahs from childhood, so that when you become older, when you become bar mitzvah, it shouldn't be difficult for you to acquire all new habits and new responsibilities and new requirements which you would have to do if you had no training in mitzvahs before. And at that time you would have already had habits that would have accumulated if you didn't get up and daven and take reshma in the morning. So then up until bar mitzvah you would sleep until 9 o'clock. And then the day of Bar Mitzvah, all of a sudden, you have to start a new schedule, you have to be up much earlier, you go to Tefillah, the Tefillah B'Tzibur, it would be very difficult. So therefore, even though, Min HaTayra, a parent is not mechiv to be mechanach you in mitzvahs, the father has a mitzvah to teach you Tayra, but the Chachamim put on us the mitzvah's chinuch, so that we should become used to doing mitzvahs at an early age, to remove the burden of acquiring a whole new set of habits when we become B'nai Chiyuva, when we become of age to be obligated. However, you have to know that it certainly makes no sense that you should remain all your life with the perceptions that you had when you were seven or eight years old. The same way that you mature in other areas in your life, your mind broadens and expands, so the perceptions that you had of Yiddishkeit that you received when you were a little child are good for, for childhood but when you grow, they have to grow too. We say in Shemona Our God and the God of our fathers. Now you know that's historically incorrect. First He was the God of our fathers and then our God. So we really should say so the Mephoshim and the Sidur explain as follows. Chronologically, it's true that first he was Elokei Avosenu and then Elokeinu. He was our father's God. We received it from our, a tradition from our parents who received from their parents back to the Avos and now he's our God. But our priority has to be that he should be Elokeinu. It starts with Elokei Avosenu. We receive the Amunah from our parents, but it mustn't stop there. We have to digest it. We have to internalize it. We have to contemplate on it and think about it until he becomes Elokeinu. Because we ourselves perceive that this is Elokeinu, that there's a Rebbeinu Shalom whom we must serve whose mitzvahs we must follow. And it's not sufficient to remain all our lives with the level of Baruch HaTor Hashem It has to be first and foremost we have to make Him Elokeinu. We start with Elokei And therefore we've begun this series to present subjects of Amunah in such a way that Be'ezras Hashem we can acquire the Amunah for ourselves in such a way that we will be able in truth to say 
Elokeinu. Not just like something we inherited from our fathers, from our mothers, from our rebellion, but something that we've internalized, that we appreciate and understand and recognize on our own. Imagine, if you will, the following scenario. Your family is taking a trip to Eretz Yisrael. However, the seating worked out in such a way that you're not seated next to your family. You're alone. Into the plane comes a youngster, your own age, with an obviously Jewish face, and sits down next to you. He has the next seat. He says, I see that you're wearing a kippah.